Welcome to In the Booth, our second episode here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Brendan Batchelor, the play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks here on Sportsnet 650 and along the Sportsnet radio network. My co-host, Randy Janda, does the color analysis for Sportsnet 650 games here on the radio, and he's also the star of the Canucks' brand-new opening video inside Rogers Arena. Uh, I was very surprised, Randeep, at the home opener to see your big face on the big screen. So we didn't didn't mention it last week, neglected to talk about it, so I had to lead off with that. Uh, what was it like to see your face on such a massive screen at Rogers Arena? First of all, it was scary because I hadn't seen my face that large anywhere, and uh, I'm not going to lie, it was a little weird. But uh, to call me the star of that video is extremely flattering, but literally <laughs> three seconds max of airtime there. I think uh, Quinn Hughes, Elise Patterson, Thatcher Demko, guys like that were the stars. But, you know, uh, I was asked to be in it, and it's it's flattering because growing up in this city, as you know, Bash, covering this team is enough. Uh, it's a dream come true, and then all of a sudden to be a part of the, the pregame presentation, so to speak, um, never thought that would happen. So just a, just a cool moment for me. Absolutely. And, and a great uh, yeah. acting job, right? Oh, absolutely. Tremendous. And caught us all completely off guard. So I think it was hilarious that like you, you had uh, kept your mouth shut. We didn't know you were going to be in it. And then all of a sudden there you were in crystal clear HD, the size of a house uh, on the big screen. So Well, there's also uh, the new screen, which makes a huge difference. So it's like beyond HD, but there's only been one home game. So if you go uh, watch a game at Rogers Arena, get there a little bit earlier so you can see my oversized face on the, the, the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it, it's amazing the difference that a week makes, isn't it? Because we were talking last week about the Canucks' 8-1 win to open the season and, and you know how well they had played and what it might mean going forward. And, of course, then the Canucks rattled off another win on Saturday night against the Oilers. And then they head out east and things don't go well in Philly. They went a little bit better in Tampa on Thursday night, but they ultimately end up losing that game because of some key mistakes. And with the team sitting at 2-2, two and two, to be honest, if you had told me that they would be 2-2 two and two through the first four games coming into the season, I would have taken that. But it feels like sort of the tenor of the market and the vibe around the way it's happened it has people thinking a little bit more negatively than that. Yeah, I think the final preseason game including, and then you add the Edmonton, the first game especially, uh, there was a, okay, this team has structure, this team has um, a different style of play, so to speak, a little bit more composed maybe in those moments. And, you know, the start against Edmonton, even the second game, was fantastic in the sense that you get the results. Um, But we know game two was very different from game one. Uh, The process, the structure, the staples, as Rick Tockett calls it, uh, were not as evident in game two. And that has continued here. Against Philadelphia, um, there was not much effort. There was not much fight. And then you don't want to say players didn't try, but like compared to Philadelphia, it was not there. In game, you know, the second game that we're talking about, Tampa Bay, you know, that game, there actually was, uh, there were moments that the Canucks were playing better five on five. There were moments like the beginning of the second period where they were strong. But the problem is, you also had those other moments where their shape, their structure went away. Uh, you could tell moving the puck out of their own zone, uh, compounding mistakes, whether it was on the penalty kill or whether it was five on five. Uh, puck management became a real issue for about half of the game. So 
that even though you know there's a lot of optimism to begin the year and there should be still this is a talented team you have to be consistent you have to string along results and play a certain style and i think because it's been so different in the way that they beat edmonton in game one and then it's been a roller coaster ever since it, it kind of shows you that hey, consistency is going to be something so key in the season because this is a grind man an 82 game schedule there's a lot of runway still the canucks can write the situation but you're right like <laughs> the reaction we were getting on air and, you know seeing the follow on twitter and the, listening to the post game show with sat and vic uh there was a lot of very very differing opinions because the process has been kind of all over the place after that Edmonton game in game one of the season. Yeah, I think we might have been naive to think that it was going to be smooth with, you know, how porous this team was defensively last year. It's going to take more than one training camp uh, for for these kind of issues to get sorted out. And, and Rick Tockett even has talked about that this is going to be a work in progress. So, um, you know, I think through the first four games, we've seen the highs, we've seen the lows, we've seen some great play, we've seen some not-so-great play, and all of that, to me, was expected. Or at least in hindsight, I look back at it and I say, it's reasonable to expect that that would happen with this team. Um, but the way it happened, I think, has, has people maybe a little bit more concerned than they need to be. Like, I kind of want to come on here and be the voice of reason a little bit and say, you know, it was never going to be smooth. They weren't going to win all 82. They weren't going to look great in every game. They were still going to have plenty of underlying issues. There are still lots of, you know, things that need to be corrected on their roster, including one area in particular that we'll get into in a little bit. And, you know... It's going to be a process. It's not going to be you flick a switch and suddenly this team is, you know, top three in the division and a contender. It's going to take time. But I think what we need to watch out for is trends. And over the long haul, what this team looks like, how they compete on a night-to-night basis. And I think compete is probably the the most important word here because I would say three of the four games I've been fine with their compete level. Even the game in Tampa where some crucial mistakes shoot them in the foot, um, they they competed throughout the night, and they were in that game. It's not like they, they never looked like they had a chance. Whereas in Philly, I never felt like they were going to score in that game. They didn't generate a whole lot. They didn't look good in their defensive zone. They weren't winning battles all over the ice. Uh, it was just one of those games where they lay an egg, and that's going to happen but it needs to not become a trend. It needs to not become something that we see with regularity. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that, especially when it comes to the the effort level, right? They brought it for three of those four games, the Edmonton game, even game two, where, sure, they might have been outskilled and Edmonton brought it from an intensity perspective. The Canucks were still putting in work. They played an excellent game for what they were able to do in that game, and especially the third period where they locked it down. Uh, Philadelphia is the one that you look back and say, you had to be better there. They outworked you, and that's the John Tortorella team. The game against Tampa, and this is where kind of the flow of the game was really weird. The Canucks actually played better in the first period, right? Scoring chances, high danger chances in terms of controlling play five on five. But the problem was it came down to you know discipline, and some of those penalty calls were maybe not the greatest, but it kind of killed the flow of the game. And it got them chasing eventually. So effort, I agree with you. But consistency is going to be the big thing here. And, you know, I think there's so much focus on the start of the season, as there should be. But when you start off the season with an 8-1 victory, 
the expectation becomes, all right, this team is better than we thought, or this team can, you know, maybe deal with the heavyweights, or if they beat a Stanley Cup contender, the rest of it, that road trip should be easy um, or easier. And that's simply not the case, because to your point, it is a work in progress, right? Where I think once we get into a little bit more discussion of what uh, needs to change or what needs to be improved, you know, defense is one of it. Uh, but also, I look at scoring right now uh, beyond, I would say, probably the power play, beyond maybe one line really doing excellent work when it comes to the territorial advantage on the ice. Uh, there are still some questions this team needs to answer. And, and that's why over 82 games, anything can happen, right? We went back to the last season where Pittsburgh missed the playoffs, Florida gets in, and, you know, all it takes is two points here, two points there, uh, a faulty process here, uh, a lack of consistency there. So to me, yeah, this is, this is going to be a long runway, as I mentioned. Uh, this team, it's going to take more than four games. Uh, for them to see how if they figured it out or not, we're going to have this probably be having this discussion in in January, February as well. Yeah, this is a team whose identity is not formed at all, and they're still trying to find that identity. We know the identity that Rick Tockett wants them to have, but it's one thing for their coach to want that and to preach that, and it's another thing for guys to be able to execute that on a game by game basis. So that's going to be something worth following going forward. Now, one particular area of the roster that I kind of mentioned earlier that I think we need to do a bit of a deep dive on here is the right side of the defense. And the reason I say that is because we put out a call on Twitter or X or whatever it's called now for you to submit questions uh, for a letters segment. So we'll, we'll take your letters, we'll take your questions, we'll talk about them, we're going to try to do that every week here on In the Booth. And I'm not kidding, Randy, when I say like 95% of the questions that were submitted to us were about Tyler Myers. I can read a few. Marcus and Gibson says, is Myers tra- actively trying to hurt EP40, which I assume he's talking about the, the Kucherov power play goal where Myers and Pedersen get tangled up in the corner. Uh, what other questions do we have here? Jez writes in, says, do you think Tyler Myers is playing himself out of the team with his current play? Uh, TB on Twitter says, should Myers be scratched? And so on and so forth. Phil says, why does Myers keep getting ice time seriously? So, we know who's in the crosshairs of the fan base right now, and you can understand why when you can essentially say that he was mostly responsible for two goals against in the loss in Tampa. But to me, the Myers situation is less about Myers and more about the right side of the defense, less about an individual player and more about a guy being put in a situation where he is not being given an opportunity to succeed. He's being played in a role that doesn't fit him. But because he's being played in that role, he's struggling, which you know I, I think is reasonable to expect because, in my mind, Tyler Myers is a third-pairing defenseman at this point in his NHL career. And if he's deployed that way and sheltered in certain minutes and given a steady partner to play with, I think Myers can still be a successful NHL defenseman it's the fact that he's playing more minutes than you'd like. It's the fact that he's got to be on one of the top two pairings because of the lack of any other option on the right side that, to me, is symptomatic of uh, of why Myers struggles so much. 
and it wouldn't surprise me at all. And I've heard Thomas Drance make this same point on these airwaves this week, but I agree with him completely that let's say the Canucks move on from Myers, whether it's they move him at the trade deadline or, you know, in the offseason he signs with someone else, but he goes to a team that has a better structure in place that puts him in a role that is more appropriate for him. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Tyler Myers kind of has a career resurgence. The problem is the Canucks don't have any other options on the right side of the D, so they have to play him in a situation that he's destined to fail in, in my opinion. Yeah, the reality is that Noah Juleson is the other option, and who were Canucks fans and all of us, you know, looking at the, his game with a microscope in the previous two games. It was Noah Juleson to say uh, his standard is not there and maybe he's uh, a player that needs to be you know, scratched. And I, I look at Tyler Myers in a couple of ways because you're right. I think as a third-pair defenseman, he would fit perfectly where you're giving him not much that ice time, uh, maybe 15 minutes, thereabouts, and he can kind of focus on his job and on the penalty kill. But Batch, when we look back at yesterday's game, he played 15-58, and the two mistakes he made were on the penalty kill. So, you know, there are some cracks, even on the good side of his game, where I actually, I know there's a lot of criticism even early on in the season to say, uh, you know, what's he doing? And he's getting a lot of ice time. On the PK, he was pretty good up until last game. And when you look at that situation on the right-hand side of defense, I think at some point Adam Foote and Rick Talker are going to have to look at what they have and maybe adjust. And I look at the top pair and Quinn Hughes, Philip Ronick, we know that they're going to eat, what, 26 minutes a game, which they did last night. But is that the way to go about balancing your, your right-hand side and balancing your defensive pairings? Because if I'm you know, looking at that situation, I, you know, we know what Quinn Hughes can do. We know what Veronik can do. Uh, there were some moments in yesterday's game against Tampa where maybe defensively a couple of breakdowns here and there, uh, especially in front of the net, which they do have some challenges maybe playing a, a stronger game out front there, just the way that their, their you know, skill set is. But most often than not, they're going to control play when Quinn Hughes is out there and Philip Ronick. But does that set up your second pair for success? And that's essentially what we're talking about here, where right now Tyler Myers is having to play a top four role on a team that – has some other options and the option I'm going to go back to is Ian Cole right Ian Cole in Tampa Bay where they played on Thursday night did play on the right hand side he was rotating in with Victor Hedman he was playing consistent minutes so I'd like to see that experiment a little bit more and I know it's not ideal because Rick Tockett doesn't like lefties playing on the right hand side but we're seeing a real gap in terms of the first pair and then the second pair on the right hand side where how can you how can you fill that void a little bit to say, all right, if somebody's going to be playing 18, 19 minutes on that second pair, is it Ian Cole? Because at this point, I think they have to try something different. As we saw in last game for sure, Tyler Myers, to me, is not that answer. And if we're thinking about long term, is Noah Juleson that answer? Is Friedman that answer? Likely not. They're guys that are maybe six, seven defensemen in this on this team. You know, long term, I know there's a lot of discussion about Ethan Bear potentially playing that role if he does end up signing with the Canucks, if he's all right health-wise. So Ethan Bear might be an option, but there's a lot of, you know, meaningful games between whenever that is and in terms of, you know, the lead-up to that. So the answer on the right-hand side might not be a righty. It might be a, a lefty moving to the right, a guy that's played uh, meaningful minutes in the past. And I'd like the coach to, to experiment with Ian Cole a little bit more because one thing that this defensive unit needs is a little bit of balance. you got a couple of star players in Hronik and Hughes, but that second pair, that right-hand side, there's a significant drop-off. 
Yeah, and I'd just like to see them try it, you know? Like, it, maybe it doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? But we haven't seen Ian Cole play the right side really at all through training camp or the preseason or now into the regular season. We've seen them try it with Carson Soucy and then go away from it pretty quickly, but not with Ian Cole. And, you know, it, it might feel a little bit like putting too many eggs in one basket, I guess, to to play Cole on the right side, but you're already doing that with Hughes and Hironic by playing them on the same pairing. So why not move Cole to the right side, see if he can find some chemistry with Quinn Hughes. You know, I would bet that he can because he's a veteran defenseman. As you alluded to, he played the right side before in Tampa. He's played it throughout his career. We talked to him about that at one point during the preseason, and he essentially said, yeah, that's no issue for me. I've got no problem playing the right side. I've done it throughout my career. It's something I'm familiar with. I'm able to do it. But the coaching staff, for whatever reason, has, has you know, been tentative to even try it. And I wonder as this carries forward, whether their hand may be forced into looking at it. Because then, and I guess maybe this could crop up with another issue if they do it. Let's say you go Hughes uh, with Ian Cole, and then you move Heronic down to the second pair. The problem with that is that then, then you're elevating Carson Soucy. And Carson Soucy might be similar to Tyler Myers in the same sense that we talked about earlier, where... Ideally cast, he probably should be a third-pairing defenseman, even though I know they paid him more like you would pay a guy that you expect to play more minutes. But to me, that's symptomatic of, of the entire issue with the blue line, whether it's Myers struggling or whether it's Susie being moved into the top four. And Susie being in the top four may be the more sustainable route to go. We haven't seen it yet, so we don't know. It's entirely possible, though, that if they were to make that change, that then we'd be you know, answering questions about Carson Soucy on Twitter because people would be frustrated with his play or his puck management. So there's, you know, you can't win. And to me, either way, the answer to this question is they only have three top four defensemen on their roster in Quinn Hughes, Philip Hironic, and Ian Cole, and they don't have the cap space to bring in another one. So it's always going to be somewhat patchwork on that blue line, and that's why we heard Rick Tockett talk about defense by committee because even if he hasn't said it, you can tell that he knows that he's short one top four defenseman, and there's only so much you can do in terms of trying to paper over the cracks when you're missing that level of player on your roster. Yeah, and that's not an easy fix either. We know the Canucks, going back a number of seasons, have been always trying to add another right-shot defenseman. It's not an easy thing to add in the NHL, but one area that I think you have to really look at and one concern that you'd have to have is, currently, you're playing Hronik and Hughes a lot, right? It's early on in the season, but they're generally in between 24 and 26 minutes a night, depending on how the night is going. Against Tampa Bay, they're chasing the game, so that number jumps up to near 27 minutes per game. This is a long season, right? And you expect Quinn Hughes to play a lot. You expect Philip Ronick to play a lot. But you also have to watch those minutes. You have to make sure that you're managing them. And if you're chasing games or if you're overloading that first pairing, that's a lot of usage. And Ian Cole's also played a lot of minutes. In the last game against Tampa, maybe not so much. But overall, he's been around 23, 24 minutes a game. So he's still playing. It's a top three defenseman rather than a top four. But there does need, you know, there, there needs to be some balance here. Um, otherwise, over an 82-game schedule, it's extremely difficult to make sure that you're able to get these guys enough rest. Uh, but overall, though, I, I look at that situation and, you know, 
one of the areas against Philadelphia with Tyler Myers, it was five on five game. It was, you know, bad time to pinch a couple of times. He tried to keep the puck in. It was a bad decision. Basically tries to keep it in his with hands, goes through and transition the other way. A couple of moments, five on five, that were not great for Tyler Myers. The Tampa game, it's supposed to be, you know, the penalty kill is supposed to be kind of his bread and butter right now at this point in his career. And that's where we saw the mistakes. So, you know, that was something that I think previously the concern was, okay, five on five, if you guard him a little bit, he can still be one of your best penalty killers. The last game was just some bad decision-making from a veteran. So to me, Batch, I start looking at that, you know, that balance question again to say, all right, five on five, even if you make that switch to Ian Cole going on the first pairing and it, there's a trickle-down effect and you could push Tyler Myers to the third pair, you know, Tyler Myers still needs to be better, especially on the penalty kill. He's still a key penalty killer. So even though if you might move it around and five on five, you remedy the situation, maybe Cole is the answer, maybe it's Susie, maybe it's, maybe it's not. But I think one thing we can agree on is that Tyler Myers still needs to be better based on the fact that he's going to be an important penalty killer for them. So you can't get away from that. We can't ignore that fact here. It is interesting, though, how his role has been a little bit decreased on the penalty kill. And I say this because each of the last two seasons, he led the Canucks in shorthanded ice time. He was their top penalty killer in terms of minutes. He was the guy that was out there most often when the team took a penalty, assuming that it wasn't him that took the penalty, which, of course, you know, does happen with some regularity as well. This season, he's fifth. Ian Cole, Philip Hironik, JT Miller, and Elias Patterson have all spent more time out there on the PK than he has. So to me, that's also, you know, significant in in assessing the way that they're deploying him, not just at even strength, but on the penalty kill to show that this current coaching staff doesn't necessarily have that level of trust with him to kill penalties either, or at least not to be one of the first four guys over the boards because he's fifth on that list. Um, so, you know, where other coaches in the past, whether it be Boudreau or Green, may have trusted him more in that role, it's clear that Rick Tockett is at least a little bit more skeptical of Meyer's ability, and you wonder how his penalty kill deployment is going to be impacted going forward because of the breakdowns in the Tampa Bay game, and in particular, the giveaway to Nick Paul, which, like, to me, for an NHL defenseman, that is close to an unforgivable giveaway. Now, you know, guys are going to make mistakes. It's a long season. We're going to see Quinn Hughes turn the puck over like that at least once this season. You're going to see it happen to Philip Hironic too. That's part of the game. It's a game of mistakes. Even the top players make crucial mistakes like that at times in games. The problem is fans in Vancouver have been watching Myers do this for years, and I've always said that Myers gets a bit of a bad rap because to me, whenever he makes a mistake, it's like a loud mistake with three exclamation marks behind it. Like everybody that knows anything about hockey can tell that that was an obvious mistake, whereas other defensemen make plenty of mistakes in games, but they're more subtle about it for whatever reason. And, you know, I think the game in Tampa is a perfect indication of Tyler Myers' game. He has the bad giveaway on the Nick Paul goal. He gets caught up with Pedersen on the Kucherov goal. But then at the same time, he scores a goal at the other end of the ice, jumping up into the rush. And that, to me, is Tyler Myers. He's a high-event player at both ends of the ice. And for a team that wants to play low-event hockey, that doesn't necessarily fit 
where they're trying to go, and it's why I wonder if Myers' role could be limited going forward if they choose to elevate a guy like Ian Cole to the top pairing, or if eventually, as you alluded to, they sign a guy like Ethan Bear. But here's the thing about Ethan Bear. One, he's not coming back anytime soon. It's going to be at least a month, if not two, before he's able to play games. And, you know, you play enough games in that time that you could put yourself out of the race if you can't win hockey games because of an issue on your blue line. The other thing is, Ethan Bear's an unrestricted free agent at the moment. He can go anywhere. He doesn't have to come back to the Canucks. And you know that other teams are going to have injuries on the blue line, are going to have needs on the right side, because guess what? A right shot defenseman appears to be the hardest commodity to find in the modern game. And so as a result, I don't think it's a shoe in that Ethan Bear's just going to come back and be airdropped into this lineup either. So you can't count on that if you're the Canucks. Yeah, he's got, a, obviously, going back to last year, a pretty good relationship with this team. But your point about being, A, a right shot D, and a veteran that has played NHL minutes. Like, that's important, where you could put Ethan Bear in pretty much any lineup in the NHL, and he's going to play a role because he's been playing at the level for, for a few years now. So that is something, you know, we've seen the contract dished out in free agency. This would be different because it'd be a halfway through the year type of signing, but there would no doubt be demand. On the Tyler Myers front, um, when you were describing the Nick Paul play, yeah, it, it, you don't see that every game, but we've kind of seen similar plays two straight games from Tyler Myers. That Nick Paul goal was a classic example of you've got all of the ice to clear the puck, but what do you do? You try to go up the boards and Nick Paul is right there. Batch, if we go back to the Philadelphia game, there was a backhand pass in a similar area that he attempted to make against, try to get the puck to Brock Besser, and Owen Tippett stole it and was in on net by himself. So what we're talking about here is decision-making. Even that, you know, that play where he ends up chasing on that penalty kill that leads to the goal later on. Um, Hold your ice. Don't chase into the corner. Like, you don't yeah, need to go and join that battle. And Rick Tockett mentioned this last week that, hey, we're, we're better at, you know, two guys or three guys behind, you know, the net. We're not chasing, right? Whether it's behind the net, whether it's along the boards, you don't have multiple skaters in one area of the ice on the defensive side. You're not, that was a moment where, yeah, that's not the case anymore. Tyler Myers, Elias Pettersson's in that side. He's battling for the puck. Not only does Myers join him, he actually takes out his teammate, which is the worst possible scenario there because, you know, Tampa Bay's got numbers. So to me, this comes down to decision-making of you're a vet in that moment, in that split second, are you making the right call to help your team or not? In the last two games, unfortunately for Tyler Myers, he hasn't been able to do that, but to Rick Tockett's point, and I thought this was a really interesting quote from postgame after the Tampa game where he said, we currently have injuries, um, so he's going to have to play better. Last time I checked, there are no injuries on the right-hand side of defense. No. Other than Ethan Bear. I was going to say Guillaume Brisebois on the left side, but that's it. Yeah, uh, unless you're talking about Ethan Bear, who's not signed to the team. Uh, so I, I found that a an interesting quote, but hey, we'll have to wait and see because you do have a player like Noah Juleson, but, you know, that's kind of probably the most uh, critiqued players early this season have been Noah Juleson and Tyler Myers. So, you know, that that position is one that's going to be talked about, I think, for the next few weeks here until there's a little bit of clarity or until there's some experimentation with Ian Cole, perhaps, on the first pair. Either that or if Tyler Myers can get the message that he needs to simplify his game and play within himself and, and not make so many risky decisions. But... He's been doing that for years. We've seen it here in Vancouver. We've heard that song before, and and he's going to keep playing it in all likelihood. Okay, that is the requisite 
defense Tyler Myers conversation that you wanted us to have. On the other side, we'll come back. We'll answer some more of your questions, and we'll do the rose ceremony as well. It's coming up here on In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor and Randy Janda with you. Thanks for joining us again. If you miss any part of the show, when you hear it over the airwaves on Sportsnet 650, it does live as a podcast on the Canucks Central podcast feed. So make sure to subscribe to that. You'll get sat and reach. You get pregame, postgame, every single game all season long. And you get your weekly episode of In the Booth as well. All right, Randy, we put out a call for questions from some of the listeners on Twitter, and people responded. We've got some good ones here. As I mentioned, a lot of them were about Tyler Myers, so um, we're, we've moved on from that. We've had that conversation. If you missed it, you can listen to the podcast. We did it in segment one. So let's get into some of these other questions, and let's start with Michael, who writes in, what's wrong with Kuzmenko? His play has been uninspired to say the least. So let's start there. I'll let you go first, Randy. What have your thoughts been on Andre Kuzmenko's play through the first four games of the season? Yeah, Kuzmenko's game is not where we saw it last year, but I don't think that's a, an indictment of, you know, where whether he's the same player or whether he's got the scoring chops. I think it's more about what that line is right now. Pedersen, we know what he's going to do, but there's only one puck. And there's three players that like the puck on their stick. So when you have Connor Garland on that line, he also likes the puck on his stick. Kuzmenko is a you know an excellent player when he can deflect pucks and tip pucks, but that's primarily on the power play. He still likes the puck on his stick. So that duo of Pedersen and Kuzmenko worked last year. I still think it'll work this year. But to me, it's about that third piece on that line. Do you have somebody that can play that north-south game and really gets the puck to Pedersen and Kuzmenko. And that's not giving Kuzmenko an out. That's more of a, I don't know if that line has a fit right now, that third piece. Maybe Anthony Bavillier might be a slightly better option because I think he plays that game a little bit better. He doesn't need the puck on his stick as much. But one of the reasons I see his game is that dropping off to start off the year is because of that. The other thing is, Batch, I think puck management is still something that he's going to have to improve with. The last two games against Philadelphia and Tampa Bay, you can see decision-making in his own zone. Um, you know, he's had some good back checks, but I feel like when we single out those back checks, we're kind of, it's a confirmation bias of, oh, he's doing it. But, you know, overall, I look at that neutral zone, and when he's not playing a direct game, when he's trying to go east-west in the neutral zone and giving away the puck, uh, that negates any attack you have it going forward. And, and that really kind of erodes the trust that a, a coach might have in him. So... On two fronts, I think in the attacking zone, there's three players that love to have the puck on their stick. There's not enough puck there. And the other thing is, you know, in the neutral zone, puck management-wise, he's still making those mistakes that, you know, caused him to play 13, 14 minutes a night last year, where realistically, as a top-line player, he should be in the 19 to 20 minutes per night. So I see a couple of things in his game. The other thing is I want to see him shoot the puck. And... You also, you have to get to some of those scoring areas in order to do that. And he hasn't been able to do that to this point in the season. Now, part of that, I think, is because teams are more aware of his ability. Anytime a guy has an offensive season like he did last year, teams are going to, 
you know, pre-scout it more. They're going to be more aware of it. It's going to be more difficult for you. And there's a reason we talk about a sophomore slump in the NHL. Even if you're an older rookie like Kuzmenko, it's going to be harder for him this year. He's not going to shoot 27% like he did last year. And he's not shooting the puck enough right now. He's got five shots in four games, and that simply just isn't enough for him to have have an impact. So um, I I think everything you said about his puck management in the neutral zone is true. I agree he hasn't had the puck on his stick very much. Um, You know, I I don't think Pedersen has been at his best over the last couple of games, too. And, um, you know, whether that's, you know, partially because of the the Tyler Myers shot that he ended up taking in Philadelphia or whatever it might be, you know, we don't know. But... um, you know, I think Kuzmenko will find his game, but it's not there yet, and it's going to be more difficult for him this year. So it's going to be about how can he battle through some of that adversity to get back to being similar to the player he was last year. Again, I don't expect him to score 40 goals. I don't expect him to shoot 27%, but he does need to create more shots in order to produce because right now five shots in four games and one goal isn't going to cut it. And you know, even though that's 20% shooting, which is impressive, you need more shots, you need more chances, you need to buy more lottery tickets, and the way to do that is to get pucks to the net. One Also, you know, one thing is that Kuzmenko's problem of not generating enough 5-on-5, he's got two points this season, both on the power play, but not being able to produce 5-on-5 is not only an Andre Kuzmenko problem, it's a Vancouver Canucks problem, where they're simply not generating enough 5-on-5. If they are, it's coming late in games where they're chasing. The Tampa Bay example is a classic example where, you know, late in the game, they're pushing. They got the extra attacker. That's where JT Miller scores. But Batch, Kuzmenko hasn't been able to do it with his line. But if you start looking at the ability or the inability to score five on five, I think that's going to be a a really important storyline for this team to correct very soon. And, you know, it's Kuzmenko, but it's also all four lines. They got to produce a little bit more uh, offensively, especially on even strength. Okay, next question comes in from Brian. And Brian asks like five questions in one tweet. So I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but he says, I would be interested to know how you guys made it to your positions career-wise. Some booth specifics, like how do you keep your voice going so long over the season? How do you follow the play? How do you learn to follow the play? What kind of tea do you guys drink? <laughs> so like, right. I, uh, I, I come from an English family, so I drink orange Pico or sometimes Earl Grey. Uh, when my voice is going, I'll go to herbal tea, so like mint or, um, you know, th- there's like a peach tea that I like to drink too that, that will help my throat if if I need it. Um, sometimes you'll mix in honey, but that's really only when I'm like seriously losing my voice, which surprisingly does happen to me like once a season, and I have to like, you know, be, be hammering back industrial strength lozenges during commercial breaks, and I drink like five liters of water during a game and you know that's uh that's 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 kind of how I deal with that uh but for the most part I think people would be surprised that like I don't do a lot of voice management and maybe I should do more maybe I should be doing warm-up drills like singers and stuff like that but that's that's not something that I've done to this point in my career anyway okay so there's your uh choice of teas and I've seen you uh throw back some of those lozenges especially when you're battling it like December, January, maybe you're coming out of having a cold or something like that. Lozenges are key. Uh, for me, a little different. I'm I'm not a tea guy. So I only drink tea when I like need it, when my voice is kind of ailing. But I, as Batch knows, I'm a coffee guy. Before every game, I, I will always have a coffee. Um, just to, I don't know if it's really helps my voice, but it's more of a habit for me. 
Um, but if I am battling it, I'm usually like a peppermint tea um, or, oh yeah, like usually peppermint's the one I go with. And in terms of um, getting involved in the sport, because Batch, you and I have very different roads to this profession. Yeah, so you talk through yours first and then we can talk about mine and how it's kind of different from the way that, that you got here. Yeah, so I got my degree in political science and history. Uh, shout out to Simon Fraser University, proud alum. Uh, but I got my, yeah, as I mentioned, I got my degree and I started um, working for the federal government. I did an internship in Ottawa, came back and realized, eh, I don't really want to do that. That's really not really for my, my thing. And ended up working at Omni Television as a, as a researcher. It was like an entry-level job. Uh, basically, you're learning, you're a sponge. And I thought it would be you know, a great job for the time being, and then I'll figure out what I want to do with my political science degree. Fast forward three years, got promoted three times, I was producing, was the assignment editor uh, in the news business, and was also covering hockey, just as a, as a side kind of passion uh, within the newsroom. And lo and behold, 2014, 2015, Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi starts, and I'm already covering the sport, I get the opportunity to join that show. So my road to Sportsnet 650 and calling these games was actually, you know, covering hockey on the news side, which turned into Hockey Night Punjabi, and then which turned into Sportsnet 650. And I've been doing that for the last seven years and Hockey Night Punjabi for the last 10 years. So my road, very different, didn't go to broadcast school, kind of learned everything on the industry level and worked my way up. So um, a really unconventional route to our profession and covering the, the sport of hockey, which obviously I've loved as, you know, growing up here in the city, but not not the conventional route that broadcasters usually take. Yeah, you know, but maybe your poli-sci background will come in handy at some point on the broadcast. I don't know what would have to happen in a game for you to be able to, to break out that knowledge, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, for me, uh, again, more traditional route. So I did go to broadcast school. I went to BCIT, the, the broadcast journalism program there. Uh, and while I was going to school, got an entry-level job in the industry at what at the time was Team 1040. So I, I just called them and asked if I could show up and do some interning, and I got to see how they produce their talk shows. And uh, from there, they hired me to work the overnight shifts on Christmas Eve and Christmas night and New Year's Eve. Uh, so I was there from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. over the, the holidays uh, for one year, and I parlayed that into doing that shift every week while I was still going to broadcast school. So I'd go to BCIT Monday through Friday, and then Friday nights and Saturday nights, I'd work 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. at the radio station. Uh, and then when I graduated BCIT, I got the opportunity to, to go on air and do like some of their sports updates, and that parlayed that into a little bit of uh, reporting with the BC Lions for the station, so covering them as the, the Lions reporter. Um, while also working in junior hockey. So I, I was the public address announcer for the Coquitlam Express for a few years, parlayed that into my first play-by-play -play opportunity with the Surrey Eagles, parlayed that into a play-by-play -play opportunity with the Vancouver Giants, and then when the radio rights switched, I uh, guess, what, just over six years ago now, we're going into our seventh season, we're underway in our seventh season, I should say, uh, when the radio rights switched, I applied for the Canucks play-by-play -play job and was lucky enough to get the opportunity. So for me, more of a, you know, I guess a traditional route, although in, in our industry, a lot of people go to broadcast school and then they have to move away from the big city and go work in small towns. Like I know Sat did that, Bic did that. I was lucky enough that my entire working career has been in Vancouver and I just worked my way up 
through sports radio here in Vancouver to get to the point now where I'm calling Canuck games alongside you. So different pathways to get to the same spot. And I think uh, it's pretty cool that, um, you know, it kind of shows that you don't have to have one cookie cutter method to get into sports broadcasting. If it's something you're passionate about, find a way to do it. And, you know, whenever I talk to broadcast students, Randeep, I say this all the time, and I think it's really good advice. I mean, I'm biased because it's my advice, but I do think it's good advice. In 2023, if you want to be a sports broadcaster, start a podcast. If you don't have a podcast, start one immediately because mm-hmm. you're building up a body of work, you're getting reps in, you're improving. doesn't even matter if anybody's listening because in today's world, on social media, you can create your own content and you can turn that into a job. You don't have to be hired by a TV station or a radio station to make it successfully and build a career in this industry. Totally agree with that. And, you know, the opportunities, you can make them with a mic. You can make them with, uh, you know, even you know, TikTok and Instagram. There's so many options now. Even going back and looking at my road, you know, I got my start in Punjabi language. And that was my opportunity where I, I had a, a, basically a platform that also I could show that I, I could cover the game in English as well. So, you know, everybody's got a different route. But when it comes to our similarities, one of them is that, yeah, I move away from Vancouver either. Funny story, the first hockey interview I ever did, and imagine being like a young reporter going out in the field and you've been tasked with interviewing somebody. The first interview, sports one that I ever did was Marcus Naslin on his Jersey retirement night. That was my first (laughs) one-on-one interview of like, all right, kid, we need you to cover something. Uh, this guy is going to get his number retired in the jersey. You got a one-on-one with him. So, you know, that was one of the coolest moments. But also, I'm not going to lie, I was very scared too because it's a big moment, right? This is this is a guy that you end up watching West Coast Express years in. And, you know, that was kind of my being thrown into the deep end. But speaks to just being lucky enough to work in this market and not having to, to go elsewhere. And uh, that comes with some opportunities. It also comes with some jitters too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we couldn't get to all of your questions uh, sorry about that. We'll try and circle back and maybe answer some of them on next week's show. Uh, Chris, we saw your question too, uh, and I, I think you could probably appreciate we can't talk about that, but we appreciate you sending the question in nonetheless. Okay, it's time. Let's get the music going. The Rose Ceremony here. The Bachelor, me, and The Bachelor, Randeep, handing out our roses for the Canucks this past week. So, Randeep, I'll let you go first. Who are you giving your first rose to? Okay, I'm not giving my rose to a current Vancouver Canuck because it was a rough week and we're going to deal with that as is. I'm giving my rose to a former Vancouver Canuck who actually joined me in the Hockey Night Punjabi studio this past week. Kevin Bieksa showing off his Punjabi, uh, which if you haven't seen it yet, at Randy Jen on Twitter and Instagram. Go check it out and TikTok for that matter. Uh, Juice was in town. Swung by the studio, and uh, he practiced this Punjabi. So I'm giving my rose to the one and only Kevin Bieksa. Absolutely. Uh, just just great to see him around town, and, uh, you know, that was, a, that was a good video. I got a chuckle out of that as well. So absolutely, Kevin Bieksa, deserving of a rose. In terms of the current Vancouver Canucks, I'll give a rose to Thatcher Demko for a second straight week because I feel like you have to um, with the way that he's played over the past couple of games, especially coming off being ill at the start of the season. 
Uh, he's putting up some tremendous individual numbers, even if the team isn't having success or, or hasn't had as much success as they would like. I don't think we need to say they're not having success because they're still at 500 and it's very early in the season. But, uh, you know, especially, you know, you look back and, you know, again, I think I said it to you during one of the breaks. It was a real pity that Nick Paul scored on that Tyler Myers giveaway because Demko made two five alarm bell saves that we would have been able to play that clip for years kind of thing if, if the puck hadn't ended up in the net on the third try. The first two chances for Stamkos were tremendous saves by Demko, and he continues to give this team a chance to win even on nights where maybe they don't deserve to be in the game. Yeah, the last game and the game against Philadelphia, it kind of felt like, and you'll appreciate this because you're a baseball fan, it felt like Jacob deGrom with the Mets, where he'd put up an excellent outing. Uh, unfortunately, he'd get no run support, and that's exactly what happened with Thatcher Demko against Philadelphia. Allows two goals, but is out of the world, you know, out of this world in terms of just playing so well, but didn't get the goal support. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, I, I changed my mind. I'll give one rose. I'm gonna give it to. To Mark Friedman. Makes his debut. Yeah, that's Ends up a good taking one. on, takes on Tanner Janot, which is a tough task for anybody. Uh, and takes a, takes a bit of a beating, I'm not going to lie. But he's standing up for himself. I, I think he deserves a rose for that attempt. Uh, I just hope he doesn't try it again because Tanner Janot is one mean character. Yeah, and I think if we're going to leave anybody on red this week... It probably has to be Tyler Myers. I know it feels like piling on, but he's got to make better decisions with the puck, and I think we can just leave it at that. So now looking ahead here, two more games on the road trip, Saturday against the Panthers, Tuesday against the Predators before the Canucks return back to the friendly confines of Rogers Arena. And the way I look at this trip as a whole, and again, I think the context gets changed because of the way this has happened, but the Canucks are 500 right now. And if you had said to me, and I even said this going into the season, if they can get out of this first road trip with a 500 record, then they have a platform to build off of. They haven't played themselves out of it like they did through the first seven games last year. And then you come back home and you can try and, and settle in and correct some things and get some more practice time in and, and build on that. So that's the way I look at the rest of this road trip. And again, you know, you want to win every game you play in. But if the Canucks can find a way to split these two games against the Panthers and the Predators, then I would deem that a successful start to the season through six games. No doubt. And the two remaining teams that they're playing right now is it's not going to be easy, right? And I think the Philadelphia game should have taught the Canucks that that effort's going to have to be there every single game. And against Tampa, they're much better. But you start lo looking at that Florida team. And they've got players that work. We talk about, you know, the high-end guys, of course. But further down that lineup, whether it's the Verhage, whether it's the Lusterinen, whether it's, you know, Matthew Kuchak, who, uh, you know what he can do. Shout out to also, and I know you'll appreciate this, Justin Sordiff, um, former Vancouver Giant, is now playing in the NHL. We know how hard Justin can work, too. So you're going to have to bring that in every single game in these next two games. And, yeah, it still would be a successful road trip. If you can pick up points, you can go 500 on this trip. I still think that's a a very good road trip in terms of, you know, picking up points. But the process is what I'd like to see. I'd like to see a continuation of certain parts of that Tampa Bay game where the beginning of the second period, being aggressive on the forecheck, the end of, you know, the game where they were pushing. And even the first period, don't take the penalties out of the equation, but just controlling the play five on five and not giving much up. 
you know, they've got to stick to that, to that, you know, their principles. And these are going to be some pretty difficult games in the sense that, you know, both of those teams are going to work hard. You got Ryan Riley in Nashville. That's going to make sure he drives his team to work harder. So, so Batch, I look at these matchups and they're going to be really interesting ones because different styles compared to Tampa and Philadelphia, different level of talent too. You know, you got Sasha Barkov and Kachuk uh, running the show in Florida, but it's still, if you can do the job here, you can work hard and pick up points, still chance for a very successful road trip. And the next game again, Saturday, 4 o'clock against the Florida Panthers. I'll have the call on Sportsnet 650. You'll be on Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi. I imagine you guys have the Leafs and the Lightning game, but what else is coming up on your show this week? That's right. I do want to mention Oliver Ekman Larson against his former team, and he yes. did score in the last game. So just a, a shout-out to OEL. Uh, this weekend on Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi, we've got uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Of course, uh, you know, I, I look at you know, what they've been able to not do. They ended up losing a couple of games. So we'll we'll see, keeping uh, an eye on the Leafs' journey. But on the West Coast, uh, we're going to have the Edmonton Oilers, the Winnipeg Jets. Um, and as always, our pre-show on YouTube and Facebook. Make sure to join in and join in on the conversation. But I'm sure you and you and the crew will have a great call on radio as well. Yeah, Leafs lightning. Always a compelling affair out there between those two clubs, especially with the playoff history over the last few years as well. That does it, though, for this week's episode of In the Booth. Thanks for joining us, and we'll chat with you again next week right here on Sportsnet 650.